We're continuing this morning our series we've titled After God's Own Heart. This series is looking at the person of David, who is the king of Israel, who was chosen by God, not because he was a mighty warrior, because he was incredibly good looking or all the things you would expect a king to have. He was chosen instead by God because when you looked at David's heart, when God looked at David's heart, he saw that it was a heart that was after his own. And so last week we dove in a little bit about, hey, what does that mean? Does it mean that David's heart was after God in the sense that it looked the most like God's on earth? Probably. Or does it mean instead that David had a heart that was after God, meaning in everything he did, every relationship, every part of his life, he was seeking to have a heart that looked more like God's. Was it more like that? And I think we landed last week that the answer is both. And as we look in this series, our hope is that ourselves, we can see Hearts that are after God's, when people look at us, they'll see hearts that look like how God intended for them to look, but also they'll see hearts that are seeking Jesus in every single thing we do, in our work, in our relationships, in our church, in every aspect of life, we are trying to have hearts that are after God's own. And so last week we talked about a story where we looked at David's heart a little more intensely and we saw a pretty large moral failure in the life of David and on his heart, which was the story of David and Bathsheba. And our hope from that story last week and now and always is that despite our worst moments, despite our biggest fears and failures, despite the thing that if it was written as beautifully as that story was, if it was written about us, it would paint our heart in a broken light and in a dark place. Despite that being true for all of us because of sin, we celebrate and have so much hope in knowing that despite our failures, we can still be after the heart of God. And just like David was still used by the Father for great things, we all, despite what we have done, can be used by the Father in great things and have hearts that are after God's own. And we're going to continue in that this morning by looking at a story in Scripture that I believe is the most like Christ's story in the Old Testament. So thousands of years before Jesus enters the scene, I think this story paints the beauty and the image of the gospel in a way that uh, just has spoken to me in my life. Uh, So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Rob. I have the gift of being one of the ministers on staff here at the church. And uh, before I was the student minister, I was the worship minister here at Wellspring. And when you're a worship minister, everybody comes up to you and they always ask the same couple of questions. Uh, The first and main one being, hey, what's your favorite song? What is your favorite song of all time? Which I think is an unfair question. And I think it's unrealistic. And if you've asked me that, I probably blew that off and was like, I'm not answering that question. Like, what is it today? It changes all the time. But... As I was preparing for this, I started listening to one of my favorite artists. His name is John Mark McMillan. And he has this song that is called Carbon Ribs. And if you have a pen and paper, if you're a note taker, write down John Mark McMillan, Carbon Ribs. Go listen to that song after the message today or as you have time throughout your week. Because I think that song, which is written based off of the story we're diving into today, paints the gospel in a beautiful way. And if somebody asks me what is my favorite song, that is probably going to be my answer. That song is written, and our story today is all about a young man named Mephibosheth. And so as you can tell, he doesn't have the most marketable name in Scripture, right? We're not going to, when a mom is putting her children down for bed and about to read them a story, it's like, tell us one about Jonah, tell us one about Noah. You're not going to hear a lot of kids, mommy, we want to hear about Mephibosheth tonight. Uh, That's not the vibe we're going to get from this story, but I think that's a miss because I think it is, like I said, one of the most beautiful stories we find in the Old Testament. 
And before we get into who he is, I want to I set the stage a little bit about where King David is and where that family is right now and how Mephibosheth fits in. So King David, as we said, was chosen by God to be the king of Israel because of his good heart. But before David was chosen by God, there was another king who ruled Israel who was chosen by the people of Israel, and his name was Saul. Saul was everything you expected a king to be. He was the charming warrior, manly man, the person that everybody would look at and say, that's a natural leader, he should be in charge. That's exactly what we would expect. If, if I were God, I would choose him. That is who Saul was. And Saul led the nation of Israel, and much like David and other kings, he did a great job sometimes, he did a poor job other times, but the reality was that he was not the king chosen by God, instead David was. But before that happened, Saul actually brought David in. Uh, A few weeks ago, Barry talked about how David was a worshiper first, and in every area of his life he was a worshiper, he was a musician. So he would come in and play music for Saul, David would. And he would come and be that musician. And during his time being close with the king's family, he struck up an incredibly strong bond and friendship with one of Saul's sons named Jonathan. David and Jonathan, if if you're looking in history, are some of the most notorious best friends that there have been. They were incredibly close because of the way that he and David got along. And eventually, Saul began to see David as a threat. Because he began to see David as the future king who God chose. And so Saul and David became enemies. Despite that his son was best friends with David, Saul made many different efforts to kill David or have David killed because he knew that David was a threat to his reign over Israel. During this time, during when all this is happening, David and Jonathan still maintain a close friendship despite David and Saul being enemies. And eventually... It all came to a conclusion in 1 Samuel 31. It says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The the Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malikshua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. So that's exactly what happened. Saul fell on his sword and had his armor bearer kill him so that the enemy wouldn't have a chance to kill him. And in this passage, we read not just of the death of King Saul, but also the death of multiple of his children, including David's best friend, Jonathan. And so this, this moment happens where they... They're killed in action. They're killed in battle. And then word gets sent back to King David. And here we see David's response. This is in 2 Samuel, starting in verse 11, when he finds out that his friend Jonathan and Saul, who is his enemy, have been killed. Verse 11 says, Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, For the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. In fact, David is so torn up, and like we said, he's a he's a musician, and that's how one of the ways that he worships in his life. He actually writes this song, and we see this in verse 23 of 2 Samuel. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury. Who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. 
Jonathan was slain in your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. You've been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. It's extremely clear in this passage that the death of his friend, Jonathan, and even the death of his enemy, Saul, have affected David greatly. What is strange is for someone who is consistently trying to be killed by Saul to mourn him in such a way, with such poetic, and of such a poetic nature, it's interesting to me. But already, this is a picture for us, this is a, a telling attribute of David, that we see that he's not like any other king. David was a king who was unlike any other king because David knew who the true king was. So what was normal for a king to do was out of character for David. What was odd for a king to do, what was out of the question, became a normalcy for David. In many ways, he flipped the narrative of what it means to be the king. Because you see, in a regime change, it's very, very violent. When, when there's a shift of powers like there was from Saul to David, it, it typically would be very, very violent. Everybody in the new regime would go out of their way to shun, arrest, beat, or kill the people in the old regime. They were hated. They were disliked. They were an enemy. And part of the reason for a king specifically to go after that bloodline of the old regime would be you don't know if later on in that bloodline, if a leader is going to rise or a warrior is going to rise who wants to take back what you have taken from their family. You don't know if they're going to rise up against you because of what you've done. So you would typically have them killed, but that's not what David does. That would have been the wise move, not just to celebrate Saul's death, but to have anybody in that line killed. But David knew the true king, and so it changed his behavior. And I think because we know the true king, it also has to change our behavior. So now if you'll turn in your stories to 2 Samuel chapter 9, here we read the story of a young man named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth's marketable name is the grandson of the late King Saul and is the son of Jonathan, David's best friend. When he was five years old and the regime changed hands, Mephibosheth was being cared for by one of the many servants that served the house of Saul. And when Saul and Jonathan were killed and word got back that uh, the tragedy had struck their family and that the kingdom was no longer theirs to control, a housekeeper picked Mephibosheth up and ran from the city and began to flee. While that was happening, she dropped the five-year-old Mephibosheth and he broke both of his legs and he lived his life that way as a crippled man. And because he had just left a family of royalty, it wasn't like he had the greatest care anymore. It wasn't like he was treated with respect in all of Israel because of his namesake. No, instead, he lived his life how I think many other people who were crippled in that time would. I imagine Mephibosheth was begging on street corners for money, was trying his best just to survive in a broken world. Uh, Since I've been at Wellspring, I have met more people who work in IT than any other place on earth. Uh, I think so many people here work in IT, but at the time for Mephibosheth, someone who couldn't walk, there weren't a lot of IT jobs available in ancient Israel, right? There weren't a lot of opportunities to work and to provide if you weren't able to walk around and work and carry the physical labor that you would need to. And so for Mephibosheth, that was his life. He went from a very, very young age where he was considered royalty to being considered broken and shunned in Israel. He was so far from royalty but he was never meant to be. Read with me in 2 Samuel 9. We'll start in verse 1. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left in the house of Saul? 
that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had, so when they had called him to David, the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, at your service. Then the, David asked him, the king said, is there not still someone from the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. David went to one of the servants who used to serve Saul, and he said, is there anybody still alive? Does Jonathan have any kids? Does anybody have any kids? Is there anybody who's related to Saul that I can bless? Because David was so close with Jonathan, he was such good friends, he goes, I just want to take care of that family. And that's so out of character for a king in David's position to do. But he found out there is a a boy, there is a, a son named Mephibosheth. Now when Mephibosheth was... Now, when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. He lowered himself horizontally in front of King David. And all King David said to him was simply his name, Mephibosheth. He answered, here is your servant. Stop for a moment. If you are Mephibosheth in this moment, you're imagining that the king of the new regime has called you forward. Your grandfather has consistently tried to kill this man. And your family has been labeled as an enemy of David's family. You are defenseless. You are crippled. You're called before the king. In that moment, the reality is Mephibosheth probably thought he was going to be killed. He probably thought he was going to die. Because that is what, on paper, he deserved. That's what would happen. He knows what happens during a regime change, and he knows that his name is not a gift to him right now, but instead it is a curse. David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Guys, the king's table is no joke. It is the most royal, fancy table in all the land. And it, it speaks wonders to where David, the king, is placing this crippled boy who was part of an enemy family. Having been crippled and on the run since he was five, I'm sure Mephibosheth, who was probably on the streets begging, wasn't used to this royal lifestyle, but instead he was being invited into a royal setting. I'm sure he had no idea what to do or how to act. Uh, I have a very important question for you guys. Uh, If you look at the screen, what is this called? It's a plate, right? It's a plate. If you're saying it's a charger, you're making that up. You're making it up. So when I started at Wellspring, I started back in December of 2019. And I uh, am asked very, very kindly if I would help with some music at the Well Gala. The Well is the food pantry found local in Spring Hill. Uh, Wellspring has partnered with them and helped them for a long time. A lot of you served a few weeks ago, which was great, at the Spring Hill Elementary Mobile Food Pantry. And it was a great experience. And I got asked if I would go to this gala and play some music and help out. I'd only been on staff for about three weeks So I barely knew the staff, let alone the church or the relationship with the well. So I figured this is a great opportunity to go and meet some people. I'd love to do it. So I bought a blazer because I didn't have a blazer. And I go to the gala. It's at the factory in Franklin. I walk in and I'm like, this is way too nice for me. Like this, this place is all set up and all great. And uh, I play a song, I play a little bit of music, and then I go to sit down for dinner. And my table's one of the first that get called up to go through the buffet line. And so like any normal person does, I grab my plate. I grab my plate and I get up and I go stand in line for the buffet because that's what you do. 
And I'm looking around and nobody else has a plate in their hand. And I'm thinking, you guys look ridiculous. None of you are going to get any food. You don't have your plates. And I have a, a friend who leans into me and he just goes, buddy, you need to go put that back down. So let me educate you. A charger is a plate for your plate. It makes zero sense in any world, let alone the formal world. And if you pick up a charger and go up to the buffet line with a charger, some, for some reason, they're going to know you're not able to be in public in a formal place and you shouldn't be allowed places. Because I looked so dumb holding my plate and nobody else is holding a plate. I'm standing in line and somebody says, that's a charger. And I tried to put my cell phone on it, didn't charge it at all. Doesn't do anything. There's no battery in it. There's nothing special. It is just a plate for your plate, which is a dumb use of money. So for anybody who knew what a charger was, whatever. Uh, For anybody who doesn't know what a charger is, you do now. And I remember I was so embarrassed because I had to go all the way back around this large room with my charger and go and put it back down on my, on my place. And I was, it was dumb. I was so out of place. And I imagine that Mephibosheth, this crippled boy who grew up in a society that probably scorned him because of how he was physically. I bet he was as equally blown away, if not more, when he finally had a seat at King David's table. It's a life he wasn't used to. And this is what it says Mephibosheth did when he would eat at the table. It says in verse 8, Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to you, your master's son, all that belonged to Saul and to his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, for Mephibosheth. You shall bring in the harvest that Mephibosheth's son, that your master's son, may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, to David, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. David then turns to Mephibosheth, the crippled young boy, And he keeps talking to verse 12. He says, as for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. All those who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem for he ate continually at the king's table and he was lame in both of his feet. Church, do you guys see the relationship here yet that I'm trying to paint? Because of a fall that he had absolutely nothing to do with. He was crippled and he could not stand before the king. Because of a fall that happened during a broken war, Mephibosheth was broken forever, was crippled, and because of that was not able to stand before the king. He was equivalent to a dead dog in the society. He was brought to have a seat at the king's table, not because of anything he did, Mephibosheth didn't shout praises to the name of David. He didn't sing his praises. He didn't do anything simply because of who his father was. He was able to have a seat at the table. The language is strong, but considering who my father is, considering who Jesus is, I am no better on paper than a dead dog as well. We're all as low as they come because of our brokenness and because of our sin, because of a fall that I don't know when the brokenness happened. 
I know what had happened for the world. I don't know what happened for me and for all of you that first time that sin got a grip on my life and it looked differently than how God wanted it to. I don't know when the breaking happened, but I do know that all of us are unrighteous and unable to stand before God because of our sin, because of the brokenness of the world. But I also know that the hope I have in Jesus is by nothing I can do, by nothing you can do, but simply because of who our father is, you too and I as well can have a seat at the table. Listen to what Paul says in the book of Romans. This is in chapter three. He says this about sin. Paul says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Those who believe, those who don't believe, those who are living their lives because of the broken world we live in, because of the fall, all of us are under the power of sin. Verse 10 says, as it is written, Paul references this part of scripture, there is no one righteous, not even one, There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery marks their way. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul paints this picture, and based off that, we have quite the uphill battle if we want to turn our lives around. Based off what sin has affected us to become, the life we are, who we are, looking at Paul's words here, that is a hopeless situation, and we are doomed. Righteousness is unachievable for us, based off of that passage on our own. And do you know what righteousness means? Righteousness is the ability to stand before God without guilt. There is nobody, according to Paul, who is righteous. There is nobody, according to Paul, who is able to stand before God without guilt. We are all crippled by our sin. In the same way Mephibosheth was crippled by his fall, so too are we crippled by the fall of man. But the king does not judge us based off of who we are, but who our father is. Just as King David didn't look at the brokenness of Mephibosheth, didn't look at his title, didn't look at what he deserved. Instead, he looked at Jonathan, his friend, one who was worthy. And he said, because of how worthy your father is, you too are worthy. When our father in heaven looks at us and sees our unrighteousness and sees our brokenness, sees our sin, sees our shame, praise his holy name that he doesn't look at me, but he instead looks at who my faith is in. He doesn't look at me, he looks at Jesus, his son, who lived a perfect and faultless life and took on my sin so that I could become righteous, not by my own strength, but by what Jesus has done. Nobody has the ability to stand before God without guilt until Jesus came and died and rose again so that he could stand before God as righteous. So when God looks at me on the day of judgment, when God looks at you on the day of judgment, he doesn't see you. David doesn't see the broken Mephibosheth. The king instead sees a pure and holy Jesus. And church, that is worth celebrating today and always. When God looks at you, when he looks at me on our own strength, on my own ability, based off what I can bring to the table, there is no righteousness. There is no ability to stand before God because of my sin. But praise his name that he looks at me and he sees his son. Jesus, who lived a perfect life and walked in righteousness, 
Jesus, who never had to mess with sin, who never got tangled in sin, who didn't experience the brokenness, God sent him. So when we stand before him, he doesn't see my unrighteousness, but the righteousness instead of his son. Paul says later in chapter five of Romans, starting in verse six, he says, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anybody die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were unrighteous, while we were broken, while we were crippled, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him, through Jesus? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. All of this, because God wants you and I to have a seat at his table. God wants you and me to have a seat at the table, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, not because there's something you have done to deserve a seat at the table or I have done, but because our father loves us so much That when he sees we're unable to sit at the table on our own, he sends his son to come and get us and bring us to the table. That's a powerful image. And I think a lot of us today are in a position where we think, I'm too broken to be at God's table. I'm too filled with sin. I'm too far gone. I haven't been a youth minister for very long, but one thing I've noticed with full clarity is that the main reason I have students say they're not ready to be baptized is because they don't think they're good enough. They say, I'm not good enough to be baptized. I'm not ready. They always say the words, I'm not ready. And then as I talk to them, I realize it's not that you're not ready. It's that you don't think you deserve it. And newsflash, you don't. That's true for our students. That's true for you and me, because based off our unrighteousness, we're the equivalent of a dead dog. We don't deserve it. There's nothing you could do to deserve it. But a lot of us treat baptism like if I just start living my life a little bit better, if I start acting right, if I start walking in the way God wants me to walk, eventually I'll be ready for baptism. We walk towards baptism like I have to earn my way to that pivotal moment. I have to change my life so I can be baptized. That's not true. Baptism is the changing of your life. A lot of us think we have to earn the chance to be baptized when really the baptism is the pivot in your life where you say, I'm walking in one direction, I'm ready to walk in another. Or for us who are broken and crippled in sin, I'm crawling my way through this life and I want to stand up and I want to walk with Christ. Baptism isn't the thing you earn. Baptism is the thing you do because we have a God who sent his son to allow us there, to invite us to the table. So if you have not been baptized, but if you believe in the words, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and I believe he's my Lord and savior. If you believe that's true, but haven't been baptized, that's the pivotal moment. Today's the day. Not because of anything you do, but because we have a God who wants you desperately to have a seat at his table. Desperately, so desperate that he sent his one and only son to die to take on all the sin and the brokenness we have, our unrighteousness, he carries the weight and guilt and shame of that on the cross so he could come back three days later and we could stand up and rise and not just be close to him, not just sit next to him, not be in proximity to the king, but in relationship with the king. 
If that's you this morning and you need to make a decision to be baptized and you need to pivot your life and walk towards Christ for the very first time and say, I need to change my ways. I need to stand up and walk. I need to be baptized. I want to invite you to do that this morning. You can come and find me or anybody after who's on staff. We would love to have that conversation with you. I'll close with this. There's a story in Mark chapter two. If you fast forward a few thousand years, Jesus is in his ministry and, he, and he's teaching in this building, and I'll paraphrase. Go read this story when you have time. I'll summarize it for you. There are massive crowds surrounding Jesus to the point where it's incredibly difficult or nearly impossible to go up and be near him. And there's these four friends who have another friend who's paralyzed and unable to walk, and he's sitting on the outskirts of the city. And these four men are like, I know if I get this person to Jesus, that Jesus can bring healing, that Jesus can speak into his life and can change everything. I know that's true. But we can't get to Jesus. There's too many people. The crowds are too thick. So what do they do? These four men pick up their friend who's unable to move himself, and they carry him not just over to where Jesus is, because they can't just do that. Instead, they have to go up and scale the building and get to the roof Above where Jesus is, they have to go and look at the roof and they have to pull back all the stone and cloth and materials that are keeping them away from Jesus. They have to make a hole in the roof and then lower their friend at the foot of Jesus just for a chance because these four men knew something that many of us forget, which is all we have to do is get close to the king and he'll do the rest. Jesus looked at this man and he said, pick up your mat and walk. And this man found not just a physical healing, but a spiritual one as well. Maybe you have already been that crippled person who has been at the feet of Jesus before and you've been baptized and you've walked with him. And even in your brokenness, you said, I don't want you to look at me. I want you to look at Jesus. And that's exactly what happened. And you've been baptized. I think that's wonderful. But now your job is to help other people get to the foot of the king. Jesus has made an open invitation to all of us, to every single one of you and said, I want you to sit at my father's table. That is the invitation open to you. Maybe you need to accept it. Or maybe today you need to be a messenger of that invitation for somebody else. And say, I don't know what it'll take. I don't know what awkward conversation it's going to mean. I don't know what difficult relationship I'm going to have to get over. But if I have to climb on top of a building and cut a hole in a roof, I'm going to get that person to the king. We have to do those two things in our lives. Baptism is not the last step. It's the first And if it's one you need to make this morning, I'm going to be out in the lobby. Please come talk to me. Or if you need prayer and encouragement because you're finding it too difficult to deliver the message of Christ, if you're finding it overbearing in this life, but you need to be reminded and need prayer and encouragement to keep moving forward and be a messenger for the kingdom. If that's you, we want to pray with you for that. Or maybe you've been at the king's table and you just feel unworthy. Please look to Jesus today and remember that You are unworthy, but he is righteous. And because of him, you too, and I as well, can stand before God without guilt. Pray with me. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the chance to worship. We thank you for the chance to gather and remember in communion. It's a chance to celebrate the things we do as a church. But Father, at the root of it all, the root of everything, we are broken people trying to have a seat at the king's table. God, what a gift. What an absolute treasure it is to be invited, not just to be close to you, in proximity to you, but to be in relationship and community with you. 
We don't deserve it. There's nothing we could ever do. But thank you so much for loving us. And on the days where we feel more broken than ever, where we feel more crippled than ever, unable to walk another step in this hard, difficult, broken world, help us remember that you are there to carry us and bring us a spiritual healing. Help us help others see the same and find you. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.